Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by Living Word Church. We trust that as you hear the Word of God preached, you'll be encouraged and equipped to love God and do His will. If you're looking for a church home, please feel free to visit our Sunday morning worship service at 10 a.m. or visit our website at www.livingwordchurch.cc. And now for our message. I want to read a passage to you, uh, one that's already been referenced this morning, and then we'll pray and, and go to the next, next step here. So this is First um, Peter. I'm going to read all of chapter 1 and a portion of chapter 2. And I think this will be on the screen behind me. First Peter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in trials, in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, because of this, with minds that are fully alert and sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, Live out your time on earth here as foreigners in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you by your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised, you, who raised him from the dead, And glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from a pure heart. 
For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh, all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And here's the center of it. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering a sp spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and the stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous, wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy... But now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we resonate with what we heard earlier, that when we gather together, you are in our midst. And that is all we have to go on this morning. We cannot and should not and refuse to rely on um, my ability or knowledge or our own uh, communal ability to figure things out or make things happen. No, Lord, you're present here. And you long to speak to us and move in our lives and in our hearts. So we rely on that this morning. God, we open ourselves up to you and ask that we would hear your voice. God, give us ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning. We trust you and we have great confidence in your love for us and your desire to speak with us this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay. So... Um, I read you this kind of extended section of First Peter. Number one, because I didn't want to put you through reading the whole book. Um, and two, because it's kind of a good sampling of what I want to get at this morning. And we'll, we'll see where that takes us. But one of the things Paul says, Peter says rather, is that uh, he uses that, that metaphor of newborn babies craving pure spiritual milk. Right? And we've heard that before. We have some sense of what that means. But that language of newborn babies struck me as I was reading this and studying this this week. Because recently in my life, a lot of people have been welcoming babies into their lives. Some of them by birth, some of them by fostering and adoption, each one of them precious and beautiful. Some of us in this very room, I think, are expecting those in the coming months. Uh, so it's a very exciting time, and I have a very big family, so I've spent a lot of time around young newborn babies um, and something that this is season of, of babies has reminded me of is the fact that um, 
that the minute a baby is born, man, everything just changes, right? You can't, you can't go into having a child brought into your family, whether by birth or by adoption, and expect to just keep humming along the way things were. Like, babies show up and things change, right? Babies are babies. They don't adapt to you. You have to adapt to them, right? I say this as someone who hasn't had my own, just to be, you know, to be upfront about it. But I think I've experienced enough, and I think that those of you who have would agree that when a baby shows up, things begin to orbit around the baby instead of whatever else they orbited around before. And so when a baby shows up, schedules change, budgets change, priorities change, life itself in a way changes because of this new thing that has been born into the world, right? Babies are delightful and cuddly, but they're also disruptive and chaotic, right? Something like that. Man, we have some good friends of Allie and I's had a baby just late last year, and their life was just totally upended. I mean, it was hilarious to watch. They're not here, so I can say that. Um, but it was just, like, remarkable. Wow, man, everything here is different. Their priorities, their, where they're spending time and money and all this stuff, and it was just really kind of funny, but also really cool to see them adjust and adapt and be willing to lay things down and recognize the importance of what has just happened, the significance of this, and the fact that this deserves all this reorienting that they had to do, right? It was a really cool thing. And so I'm going to extend this analogy a little too far, and you're going to laugh when I say that when the early church was birthed into the world of first century Palestine, it was a lot like a newborn baby. Go ahead, laugh if you want. It's silly, I know. But the good news of the gospel, when it arrived on the scene in the early days, if you will, was that Jesus had come and the Holy Spirit had been poured out and the world was going to have to adapt to that, right? This wasn't something that happened and things could stay the same. People could choose to refuse to to pay attention to it and reorient around it, but they were going to feel the ripple effects of what was happening because there was a, a disruptive force now at work in the world, right? Jesus didn't come to leave the status quo how it was. He came to shake things up. And, and invite people to reorient themselves and their lives around what God was doing in Christ. And so as the gospel took root in the life of the early church, and the Holy Spirit began to really push the envelope and challenge what God was up to in the world, adaptions had to be made, right? Schedules had to change. Priorities had to change. Budgets had to change. Life itself had to change to give this new thing birthed into the world the significance and the priority that it was due. But let's remind ourselves why such change was happening. What was so significant about what had happened in Jesus? Well, in large part, it was because, the, because of the nature of the good news that Jesus had proclaimed and embodied. Right. So Jesus arrived on the scene in a world ruled by Rome in a way we probably can't even comprehend. The known world to Jesus and those around him, Rome was everywhere and everything. And the Jews, Jesus' people, were the kind of unfortunate, begrudging subjects of Rome and of Emperor Caesar Augustus. The Jews had a long history, right? They were God's chosen people in the world, the ones through whom God had promised to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. But at this point, particular point in time, things weren't looking too good for them. 
because their concept of what it meant to be God's chosen people involved, um, more or less, we can say, it involved them being in the place of Rome, right? It involved Israel being the one who kind of was running things, and then people would come and meet God through that system. And this was not the case when Jesus showed up in the first century. And so the Jews were kind of in a difficult spot uh, as far as their calling, what they knew God had called them to do, but how to actually see that happen in the world. And so for centuries, the Jewish people had been waiting for this Messiah or king that God had promised to send. God had sent, I see what's happening here. I see the difficulty. I see the disconnect between what I've called you to do and who I've called you to be and what's happening in your life and in the world around you. I'm going to send someone who's going to make that right. This is the Messiah or the king that God had promised to send. And for them, what they expected was that that Messiah would come and would, yes, unseat the powers that ruled over them and make Israel that kind of sovereign nation state that they had always thought God intended them to be. That was the way they expected things to work. And so Jesus arrives in this setting claiming to be that Messiah, that king, but proclaiming a fundamentally different kind of kingdom, right? One that came by love instead of violence, one that came, uh, that didn't depend on that sort of national sovereignty, and perhaps most radically, one that wasn't limited to part- in participation to the people of Israel. Jesus came and said, no, the kingdom of God is a massive banquet feast, and anyone who wants to come and sit at the table and eat is invited to do so. And that wasn't the way that it was supposed to be, right? The expectation had been different than that. But because the kingdom of God was this disruptive force in the world, Jesus had the audacity to declare these things. And Jews and Gentiles feasting together, living life, sharing life together, was not something the world had really ever seen. This is at the heart of why the gospel was that disruptive, seemingly chaotic force in that first century. Does that make sense? That this new thing was happening that people hadn't seen or experienced. They didn't really have answers for their questions or categories to put this in. And so it felt like there was this massive earthquake and these tremors were rippling out and life itself was being shook up by what was happening. Because the Jewish people had expected that God would establish their kingdom And then that kind of at the end of time when the Messiah came, that's when the Gentile story would intersect with theirs. Does that make sense? That when when God's promised Messiah came, then we'd start to see this thing with the Gentiles happen. But not before then. That's not the way this story was supposed to work. But that brings us to the center of the issue, that in Jesus, God had established his kingdom through his Messiah, but in a way that nobody saw coming. So let's make the connection here. This is why I think 1 Peter is a really fascinating letter, right? Because in many respects, 1 Peter seems to be a letter that is written to a Jewish audience. Some of the churches in that first century and, and onward, some were made up of Jews who had believed in Jesus as Messiah and become Christians. Some were made up of non-Jews and some were mixed. Right? And 1 Peter, in a lot of ways, seems like it's written to a church made up 
of, uh, of Jewish believers. Um, there are all kinds of language and imagery that are drawn from the story of the Old Testament and the, the history of the Hebrew people that make you think, oh, this would only be intelligible to people who had come from that background. Right? There's a lot of stuff, even in the chunk we read, that resonates with that. He, Peter says, you're, you're God's elect. Well, that's, that's the Jews, Genesis 12 and onward, right? The Jews are God's elect chosen people. And he says, you're exiles. Well, the Jews are the ones who had been kicked out of their land by Babylon and Assyria and now Rome. They were the ones exiled from their land, right? Again and again and again. There's these things that make us think this would only make sense if Peter was writing to people who shared in that story. But then there's a couple things that seem to say the opposite. And you'll see where I'm going with this in just a minute. But in the section we read, Peter says to his readers that they have an empty way of life that's been handed down to them by their ancestors. And he refers to their past as a past lived like godless people. And he lists what that looks like. He says, you've lived like godless people in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. And no one would argue at that point in time that the Jewish people were perfect, by no means. But they would not use those terms to describe their heritage, right? There's a dissonance. This can't be for Gentiles because of all this Jewish imagery, but it can't be for Jews because that's not what their history was like. You see what I'm getting at here? And it also doesn't make sense for this letter to be written to a mixed audience. So where does that leave us? Maybe Peter's the one who's drunk and debauched and doesn't know who he's writing to and he's confused, right? We got to remember, church, as we read 1 Peter, that Peter's writing, whoever this church is, whatever his audience is, he's writing with this disruptive gospel in mind, right? He's writing in light of what has happened in Jesus. This radical, world-changing good news that has happened in Jesus is that God's kingdom has been established, perhaps in a way nobody expected, but it has nevertheless happened. So what Peter's doing here is his writing, he's not just writing with the gospel in mind, we could say that what he's writing is the gospel. Because I think what's happening here is that Peter's writing to people like us, people who don't share in the Jewish story, the heritage of Israel. He's writing to Gentiles, but he's intentionally using Jewish language and imagery because he wants those people to see that because of Jesus, their story has been caught up into what God has been doing for centuries through the Jewish people, right? Since, since Genesis, God had promised that through this one people, Israel, I will bring blessing to them and to all the nations of the earth. And what Peter's trying to get his audience to see is that you're now part of that, right? Peter is saying kind of subtly or implicitly what Paul says very plainly in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says, you were outsiders. You were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to God's promise. But now you have been brought in. Jesus has broken down the walls that divided you from his chosen people and made the two groups one. Therefore, you are no longer outsiders or foreigners or strangers. But you are fellow citizens with God's people and members of of God's household. That's 
what Peter is getting at. Peter's trying to proclaim the gospel to this church. He's saying, hey, look, I know, I know that you have lived your whole lives planted in this particular story of what's happening in the world, right? The various stories people might have believed about the world at that time were that perhaps that life had little or no meaning or maybe that this pantheon or this group of gods had created the world and that their creation had gone awry and now the gods were angry at the people and so the people had to try to be perfect and make sacrifices to keep the gods from being angry, right? These are the kinds of stories people would have believed in those days. And what Peter is saying is, I know that that's the story you've been part of, but the good news is that in Christ, you've been uprooted and replanted in this other story. That the one true God who made the world and loves it in spite of its brokenness has taken on human flesh in Jesus of Nazareth. And he lived a faithful life and died a faithful death So much so that he was raised from dead and defeated death and then ascended to heaven and sits at God's right hand and poured out his spirit even on his people. That's your story, Peter's saying to his audience. Yes, you still carry your past with you. Yes, there's still a tug from your old story. But believe me when I say the good news is that that's no longer who you are. In Christ, you are part of God's chosen people. And he has a purpose and a plan that he is looking to work out in the world. And his intention is to do it through you. This is what Peter is trying to get through to his people. That their story has been changed. That's the good news of the gospel. Church, do I even need to say that the same is true of us? That's, that's pretty much my whole sermon. That's pretty much it. Is that in Christ... Our roots have been yanked out of whatever soil they were planted in before. Whatever story we were living in before, separate from Christ, we have been uprooted and replanted into the story of the gospel. That's good news. Stories we believe, right? That life has no meaning, no purpose. That God perhaps doesn't exist. That if he does, we have to live perfectly and attempt to earn his love, his favor, his blessing, his acceptance. There's a myriad of stories that we have lived according to, but the gospel says that we have been uprooted and replanted in the good news that Jesus is Lord and is at work in the world making things right. Amen. That is the gospel. And so that's why I have these plants here. I'm sure you've been wondering. Many of you know that in the last several years, I have uh, developed kind of an interest in gardening, and uh, one of the first things I learned as I began to kind of research how to garden well and have a garden that actually produces things is that the most important aspect of the whole thing is the soil, right? A lot of people will even say that a good gardener should consider themselves someone who grows soil, and the soil will take care of the rest. If you can produce soil that is healthy and vibrant and full of the right stuff, the gardening will pretty much take care of itself, because the nutrients will be there, the density will be right, so the rainwater will hold, and there will be, you know, it's all about the soil. That was the first thing I learned about how to have a garden that produces. It hasn't worked out perfectly, but it is what I found. A plant's ability to thrive and its potential for growth depend in large part on the soil it is planted in. I've also learned that the process 
of transplanting something is very delicate, right? So transplanting is that process of taking a plant. It's a windy morning. Maybe that's the spirit of God. Transplanting is the process of taking a plant out of one patch of soil and putting it into another, right? So an example is uh, where I've experienced this is that if you start growing seeds inside your house in the colder months and then you want to put them in your garden, you've got to take them out of whatever you started growing them in and gently replant them in the soil outside in your garden. And that's an extremely delicate process because the plant is accustomed to the soil and the location it's been growing in, right? It's um, the roots, like if you've ever pulled a plant up like this, you'll often find the roots get all balled up, right? And it's, it's just gotten really used to being in that space. And so to pull it out and plant it somewhere else, is, there's kind of a risk involved with that because you don't necessarily know that the plant will survive. But it's worth the risk because the current pot that it's growing in or the patch of soil it's growing in, if you know that the pot is too small and the roots won't be able to grow deep enough and wide enough or that the soil is contaminated or toxic or whatever else, can't provide the nutrients the plant will need, you've got to do it. It's a necessary process. To use the language of Genesis, a plant in bad soil will surely die if it doesn't get transplanted into different soil. So although the process is fragile and perhaps risky, a good gardener who cares will go through with it because it's a necessary process. And it's the thing that will give the plant health and life. And so that's kind of why I brought this because I think that as we think about what it means for our stories to be transplanted from whatever they were once rooted in and into the story of the gospel, we go through this process in a way, right? Many or perhaps most of us here have in a way experienced this, that our roots have been pulled up and transplanted into new soil. And that process is complete, but it's still in a way ongoing. We still sometimes feel the, the, the difficulty of that process in our lives, right? There's this sort of tearing loose that happens as the plant. Sometimes many of us are like this, and you've got to really yank it up, right? We're really deeply rooted in the stories we were living in, that, that life is all about us, or that I'm the center of the universe, or that I've got to make it all happen, or that life doesn't have much purpose, so I better just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, right? We're deeply rooted in some of these stories, but the necessary thing to happen is for us to be torn up out of those. And so, although it's painful, although it might hurt, it's a grace that God does this in our lives, right? Because apart from God, we don't know that the soil we were once planted in has no ability to give life. And so, we are torn up out of our old stories. I'm going to make a bit of a mess here. And the pot is too small. The roots can't grow deep and why there's not enough nutrients in the soil, the good news is that in spite of that, in spite of the difficulty, in spite of the delicacy and the risk, God saw fit. God saw value and worth and cherished us enough that he tore us up and chose to plant us in new soil. I'm probably going to kill this plant doing this, but that's okay. God puts us in new soil. God plants us in a new story, right? God says, no, whatever you were living in before, oops, 
whatever it was you were planted in before is bound to bring death. And so God in his grace has uprooted us and planted us in a new story. And so in light of that, the whole trajectory of our lives has changed, right? Based on the depth of soil or the width or the nutrients, a plant can grow short or taller this way or that way. It can produce fruit or no fruit, right? Because we have been replanted into the gospel story, the whole potential and trajectory of our lives has changed. And so in light of the good news of the gospel, there's a whole new outlook on life. And so it's right and appropriate for us to rethink every aspect of life, of life in light of what God has done, right? To rethink, as we kind of alluded to earlier, our priorities and our budgets and how we spend our time and who we spend our time with and what we do. All of this is back on the table in light of what God has done. A new story means a new outlook on life, right? A new way of being a human being because we're beginning to grow deeper into new, richer soil. And there are no simple answers as to what this kind of life looks like. Life rooted in the story of the gospel is something we've got to figure out as we live it. You can read certain passages like the Sermon on the Mount, you get kind of close, but the reality is that we're kind of figuring this out as we go, right? We're kind of like improv actors who, don't, who know the story before us, but are kind of figuring this whole thing out as we go. But there's one helpful description Peter offers us that I want to point out this morning. Peter says that in light of all of this, you who have been brought into the story of the gospel are a kingdom of priests. That's another one of those labels that is reserved for the people of God, right? It comes from Exodus 19 when God's chosen people were on Mount Sinai after coming up out of Egypt. And God says, you are a priestly kingdom. Peter takes that label and applies it to these Gentiles who have been brought in. It's applied to us because in Jesus, Jew and Gentile together are God's chosen people. And so in using that term, Peter casts a vision for us of what life looks like rooted in the gospel story. It doesn't give us specifics, but it stirs up our imagination for what it might look like for us, living where church, to live as people rooted in the story of the gospel. In Israel's story, the priest had, the priests, there were many, had lots of different tasks and responsibilities, but the primary thrust of the priestly duty can be said like this. They were called to stand between God and the people, to represent the people before God and God before the people. The priests were in between. And in Israel's story, the presence of God was found in a particular place, right? So we read in the Old Testament that at first, the presence of God is found in this mobile tent called the tabernacle. And then later, they build this great and glorious temple and God's presence fills that temple. And so the priests would go to and from the tabernacle and temple, mediating the presence of God, bringing the people sort of before God and God before the people, speaking their words to one another, representing one another to each other. But at the end of the Old Testament story, or near the end of it, the temple is destroyed, which raises some interesting questions. And then it's rebuilt, but God's presence never enters it again. The glory of God does not fall on the rebuilt temple. And church, that's because 
when we turn the page to the New Testament, we find that the glory of God has taken on flesh, that the word of God has tabernacled or dwelt among us, that Jesus is the temple, that the presence of God now dwells among mankind because Jesus has become one of humankind. So God's presence in Jesus is no longer bound to the tabernacle or the temple to the four walls or the building, but it is found in Christ. But then, but then Jesus dies and is raised and ascends to heaven and is no longer present in that physical body. But he pours out his spirit on his people. And then we find Paul saying things like this, don't you know that you are God's temple? That the Spirit of God dwells in your midst. That just as the bricks in the Old Testament built a physical temple, so you are spiritual stones, as Peter has said, building a temple of God's presence in the world. You are a priestly kingdom. You carry the presence of God with you. You are God's temple where his presence dwells, and your job is the same, to represent the world before God, and God before the world. Now, don't mistake this for, like, Oprah, right? Peter's not standing up there saying, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you're the temple. No, it's more like Peter saying, y'all are God's temple together, all of you. There is no, right? Paul says, the presence of God dwells in your midst. There is no midst if you're alone. But when we come together, presence of God is among us. So church, Peter's challenge to us, his encouragement to us, is that we are a priestly kingdom. Anytime two or more of us are within shouting distance of each other, whether young or old or male or female or black or white or brown or married or single or old Christian or new Christian, anytime two of us get together, God is there. This is remarkable. I mean, think about the consequences of this. How many of you, like me, often just feel like, man, I really need to be in God's presence? That's a normal occurrence in the life of a Christian, as far as I know. What do we do when we feel that way, do we try to conjure something up? No. Look around this room. Call somebody. The minute the two of you come together, God is present. Pay attention. He'll be speaking. He'll be at work. Because when two or more are gathered in my name, there I am among them. In this very room, at this very moment, God is here, speaking and working and moving. Right? Have you ever longed for your neighbors to experience the presence of God, to know the love of Christ, get together with someone in this room and then invite your neighbor because God will be there. That's an oversimplification, but do you see what I'm getting at? That as a priestly kingdom, as a bunch of people who when we gather, God is present among us, it is in some sense as simple as getting together and inviting the world to come join us and then paying attention. God is here, but what is he saying? What is he doing? How does he want to speak through me to encourage or build up or challenge or bring new life to this person we've invited into this space? 
This is what it looks like, church, to live life rooted in the gospel story. That we were once, you might say, a kingdom of who knows what, a kingdom of narcissists, a kingdom of people concerned only with ourselves, a kingdom of people who thought the world had no point and was going to burn up and explode. Whatever it might have been, we're rooted in a new story, that we are a kingdom of priests and priestesses, I should say, that each and every one of us, when we gather together, the presence of God is there, that each one of you is a building block in God's temple. And so the minute you gather with someone else who is also a building block in God's temple, the presence of God is there. This is remarkable news. So what I'd like us to do in closing today uh, is we're going to sing a song, um, but what I want us to do before we get there is to take a minute or a couple of minutes and to sit quietly and acknowledge that God is present. And, and don't do too much thinking or asking, but just open yourself up to the reality that the Spirit of God is in this place, longing to speak to you or perhaps to speak through you to someone else. Let's take a minute, pay attention, and see what God has to say, and then we'll sing and close. You are the temple of God's presence. The Spirit of God dwells in our midst. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, there is life, there is liberation from bondage to sin, to our broken pasts, bondage to our old story, there is comfort for those who mourn and joy for those overwhelmed by sorrow. There is friendship for the lonely and family for those who have none. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is welcome for those who have been rejected. 
there is security for those who are at risk. There is peace for those drowning in the chaos. And the Spirit of the Lord is here among us every time we gather. Church, we don't We don't come to this building to meet with God. We get together to meet with God. And this is one of the places we happen to do it. God is present whenever his people gather. It doesn't have to be here. It can be tomorrow night in your home. It can be in your small group this week. It can be in your Lent microgroup. It can be when you have coffee this week with the person sitting across the aisle from you. God will be there. God will be there when you and your roommate or your spouse invite a neighbor for dinner. God is present there. And he's present now here in this place, longing to speak and to move and to touch, to heal and to redeem. So let's sing together in light of this very good news. And if the Lord has spoken to you, sing in gratitude and celebration to that. If the Lord has spoken to you to speak through you, be obedient to that. Walk across the room and say what the Lord has given you to say. Come to the front if it's from the front. God is present here. Let's not miss the next four minutes to really pay attention to what he has to say.